Back in 1919, Boston's North End was an industrial hub. It was right on the harbor where large freighter ships were constantly passing through, some carrying goods from the Caribbean. The neighborhood was a melting pot of immigrants, many of them from Italy. When it was nice out, some workers would take their lunch break along the busy waterfront, next to a park where kids would often be playing. Above them loomed a 50-foot-tall, rust-brown steel storage tank filled with industrial-grade molasses. The kids would sometimes swipe some of the sticky, sweet ooze that leaked from the bottom. On warm days, the tank made this deep groaning noise. But the North Enders were used to it. The steel tank had been groaning for years. And then, in January of 1919, the tank exploded, unleashing a roaring tsunami of thick brown goo the effects of which would be felt for years to come. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanen. 103 years ago this week, at 12.30 p.m. on January 15, 1919, a wave of molasses ripped through Boston's North End. And in the wake of this syrupy disaster, people had questions. Like, what caused the tank to blow? Or maybe the question was, who? That's coming up, so stick around. Hmm, actually, maybe not the best choice of words there. Um, stay tuned. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Great Molasses Flood. It all began with an explosion and a tank. And when I say tank... Maybe you're picturing, like, one of those little water tanks or something. But I cannot overstate just how huge this thing was. The molasses tank towered over the north end, 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. 
taller than the buildings that surrounded it, taller than the elevated train track that cut through the neighborhood. And it held more than two million gallons of molasses. I mean, this thing looked like a freaking spaceship had landed along Boston's harbor. So why would they need to store that much molasses? No, not to make a million gingerbread cookies. The answer is actually war. Specifically, World War I, which started in 1914 and which the U.S. would eventually join three years later. So there's an anticipation with a war beginning in 1914. Even though the United States is not involved, the United States could be producing munitions to sell to the belligerent powers. This is Suffolk University history professor and Boston historian Robert Allison. And he says a big part of munitions production, wouldn't you know, is molasses. The molasses would be processed by the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and going to be uh, used in explosives. So it was really important to the economy of Massachusetts. Molasses was converted into ethanol, which would later be refined into a powder. Some of that would get used to make smokeless powder for explosives. One company that processed molasses for these, you know, weapony reasons was the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, or USIA for short. They needed a lot of storage. They needed it close to the harbor to receive shipments. And they needed it all fast. So in early 1915, USIA built that giant spaceship of a molasses tank in the North End overlooking Boston Harbor. And it sat there for a few short years, until one unseasonably warm morning. People hear what sounds like machine gun fire. And the big sheets of steel that had been the tank are pushed apart. And a 50-foot wall of molasses goes in all directions. All the molasses in the tank, enough to fill three Olympic-sized swimming pools, oozed over the city. It's likely that because it was such a warm day, the molasses was much less viscous and more fluid, and it tore through the neighborhood around 35 miles per hour. There are a couple of houses on the other side of the street. One is a frame house that's completely demolished. A woman sleeping inside, she's killed as the house collapses on her. So you have this huge wall of goo essentially sending this tank in different directions, and it hits the trolley line that goes along Commercial Street. The wave leveled the train line. One train conductor was able to stop his train just after the wave ripped through the tracks, saving many lives. But not everyone was so lucky. The people who die in it are actually drowned. And imagine being drowned, but you're being drowned by this thick, viscous fluid, and you're suffocated in the molasses. Horses drowned in the wave, people were knocked into the harbor, and the debris that got caught in the molasses turned into flying shrapnel, tearing through every building and every body in its path. 
we realized it was a molasses tank that started by then to flow across the playground. This is Captain Harry Howe from a 1981 interview recounting a rescue he attempted right after the flood. We came to this truck and there was an arm sticking out from underneath an officer took three or four of us to help do whatever we could. Mm -hmm. And we could see that there was a man in there. And so the the lieutenant said, well, uh, get him out, get him out. So we did crawl under and get him out, but he he had been dead for some few minutes. Though the warm day had kept the molasses liquid enough to rip through the north end, as temperatures dropped that evening, the sticky molasses that coated the streets began to harden. In some places, it was inches thick. Red Cross ambulances flooded to the scene. They, along with other rescue workers and Good Samaritans like Captain Howe, searched through the rubble for survivors. Some used steel-cutting torches, Others dug through with their hands. Buildings had been swept everywhere, even into the nearby park where bodies lay under the wreckage. Survivors gasped for air between the hardening molasses and the rubble. It took days to find all the bodies. As rescuers continued their search, going to and from the North End, the thick, sticky molasses was tracked all throughout Boston. And in the North End, the sweet, sour smell of molasses would linger for months. In the end, 21 people died. More than 100 were injured. You have this sudden explosion, and the disaster itself takes maybe five, ten minutes, but then it is going to be months to try to clean this up. I mean, take down the buildings that have been damaged. Everything, of course, is now covered with this Uh, sticky goo. Boston's fire department found that salt water could dissolve the sticky stuff, and they slowly flushed it into the harbor. At one point, the water became so full of accumulated molasses that it turned a thick, soupy brown. Once the sugar swell settled, everyone started wondering the same thing. Who was responsible for this horrific disaster? Almost immediately, people, and even newspaper reports, speculated that the explosion was caused by a bomb. According to history writer Bruce Watson, this was because, at the time, bombings and attacks were pretty frequent. There was a series of bombings in 1919 where bombs were sent to Rockefeller and uh, J.P. Morgan and some 30 uh, different leaders, and they were all signed. They all had. And this wasn't faceless violence. The people who were behind these bombings were anarchists. Anarchists believed that because government was oppressive, that democracy was a joke, that it would never work, that American representative democracy was no different, and that the only hope for humanity was eventually to get rid of all that, just to clean, clean it out. There was a good deal of violence during the years directly after the war. The worst damage was caused when a bomb went off in Wall Street just outside of J.P. Morgan's office. 
One of the most notable attacks took place around the same time on Wall Street in New York City. Reportedly, anarchists packed a street cart close to the New York Stock Exchange full of dynamite and shrapnel. Anarchist bombings like these were happening with alarming frequency. And it just so happened to be that many of these anarchists were Italian immigrants. Italian anarchists would be the logical people to point a finger at for almost anything that happened that was violent and or horrific. And who lived in Boston's North End? A lot of Italian immigrants. This was a new wave of immigrants uh, that had come since 1890. Most of them were from Southern or Eastern Europe, uh, Italy, and they all were divided into little enclaves. Many people who fled poverty and persecution in Italy in search of opportunity ended up in the North End, but they weren't greeted warmly. It was across America that there was all this resentment of immigrants, very similar to what we've seen in the last few years, of they're taking our jobs, they aren't like us. What? Americans hostile to immigrants? No. They don't assimilate like we all did. They don't speak English like we all did. They aren't white in some ways. Uh, In many ways, they were considered, even Italians were considered not white, not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant anyway. So, of course, if something happened in the Italian North End, who would you point a finger at? Italian anarchists from the North End blew up the molasses tank. That's what many people were going with. It all seemed to make sense. But if you talk to the locals about what happened to the molasses tank, well, they had a different suspect. The molasses may have covered the streets, but it couldn't cover the truth. That's after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard about the great molasses wave that tore through Boston's North End, a working-class community of immigrants devastated by the sticky flood. 
And we heard about the growing suspicion that Italian anarchists were behind this sweet disaster. But a lot of the immigrants who lived in the North End, they weren't buying the theory that the tank had been bombed. Because, as Robert Allison, the Suffolk history professor, says, they'd been worried about this molasses tank for years. The people in the neighborhood began saying, you know, we see the molasses leaking out of the rivets, and we don't think the tank is safe. They had heard the tank groan. They had seen the tank leak. And after they reported the leaking to USIA, the company that operated the tank, what did USIA do? The company's response to that was to paint the tank brown. No one's going to see the molasses leaking anymore. We'll just paint it over. So the victims' families and people in the neighborhood banded together and did something quite American. They sued the fuck out of USIA. It's actually with 10 victims or plaintiffs. It's one of the largest class action lawsuits in the history of Massachusetts. Months after the disaster, a series of civil cases were ordered where these plaintiffs would demand accountability from USIA. In the end, 119 people sued, and it was the first lawsuit of its kind in the state. And it's a process that takes about three and a half years from the time of the explosion to then have the witnesses and the testimony taken. The judge would listen to hours upon hours of testimony. It was reported that he would keep the court open until 10 p.m. to hear from anyone in the community. In the end, there were over 3,000 witnesses called and nearly 40,000 pages of testimony. And in all of that testimony, some pretty damning evidence against USIA emerged. For starters, the tank's construction was pretty shitty. It was constructed quite quickly. It was enormous. And then, surprisingly, the, the walls of the tank were really thin. This is science and history reporter Emily Sohn, who's written about the explosion. So it was just 0.67 inches at the bottom and a little thinner, 0.31 inches at the top. And that's, I'm just pinching my fingers together. That is extremely thin walls, even if you're not up on all the laws of physics, it just feels intuitively like that's too thin. Normally, tanks like these were tested first, filled with water to see if there were vulnerabilities in the tank, spots where it leaked, to make sure that it could hold all of that molasses. And I think we we have this temptation. People didn't, didn't know enough. Maybe it was an honest mistake. Maybe they didn't have all the information they needed. But They did know better. They knew that they should have tested the tank. But USIA just didn't. Why? Boston historian Robert Allison says it's because they simply chose not to take the time to do it. The tank had been finished in uh, 1915. Actually, on the very day, the first shipment of molasses arrived from Cuba. And they didn't have time to fill it with water to see if it leaked. So rather than do that, we simply filled it up. And the tank had been filled from 1915 until it exploded in 1919. Despite the heaps of damning evidence, USIA kept trying to evade responsibility and blame the Italian anarchists. 
But there was never any evidence of a bombing. In the nearly six years of legal proceedings, USIA could never prove that the cause of the explosion was anything except their own negligence. The company tried to lean into a narrative of the violent, disgruntled immigrant, but it didn't work. And so finally, the judge slammed the gavel down on USIA. The tank's faulty construction had led to the disastrous wave in the North End. USIA settled for $600,000, which translates to about $8 million today. The community fought back and won. The corporation lost. You know, when people tell the story of the Great Molasses Flood, they often mention a silver lining. Because USIA was found responsible, stricter construction standards were created across the country. In part, protecting people from harm, yes, but also helping to shield companies from certain liabilities. So, sure, more emphasis on safety. We can call that progress. But how protected are people really? This kind of story, where a company cuts corners and ends up harming people, that still happens. Businesses do this to their workers, workers who need the jobs, when they skirt workplace regulations that lead to on-the-job injuries and industrial disasters. They do this to the communities they exist in, when they extract resources and dump waste with impunity. They do this whenever they make a choice that prioritizes business needs and profit margins over people's safety, people's lives even, and leave behind a mess for others to clean up. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, there's a new sheriff in town, thanks to a historic piece of legislation. A registration of the Voters' Rights Act, it was like a gassed-up Porsche ready for the highway. It was no stopping that change from happening at that time. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig and Amy Padula. Our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. One of our guests on today's show, historian Bruce Watson, runs a website with more history stories of all kinds. For more, visit theattic.space. Special thanks to Mark Aronson, Spencer Buell, Madeline Billis, Nicole Sharp, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter 
at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I wrote this two years ago and preparing for this, I went back and reread it and constantly going, what? Really? Wow, that's crazy. 